Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Athletic Hockey Show's Prospect Series. I'm Max Boltman, with me as always is Corey Promman, and this is take two of, of us doing this. We recorded our show uh, Wednesday afternoon, and just hours later, uh, the Kevin Fiala trade from Minnesota to Los Angeles went down. So we are uh, redoing this at the top. There may be a couple things you hear later in the episode that have that sound outdated in this context, specifically with regard to Corey's uh, mock draft that is a seven-round mock draft that is publishing Thursday, so we apologize for that in advance. But Corey, pretty big news today, just about one week before the draft, uh, something we all expected. I mean, Kevin Fiala getting traded from the Minnesota Wild, but the Kings may be a little bit of a surprise uh, partner for them in this trade. Uh, where do you think it came from with LA? Right. I mean, the common thoughts were Ottawa at seven, New Jersey at two in, in the draft seemed like the best trade partners for them. But I think you look at the Kings and this is a team that has a lot of really good young players at forward and defense, both you know mostly mostly come up in the farm system, but some on the NHL team too. We saw emerging over the last year or two. Uh, the division around them isn't very strong. They took some positive steps as an organization this season. I think you probably should look at the roster and not say this looks like a true upper echelon roster. There still needs to be more that needs to be added, and I think this is part of that important important step from going from an average bubble playoff team to a team that could be on the rise in the NHL, presuming that the young players around them, like Arthur Kalia, like Tobias Bjornfoot, like Quentin Byingfield, and, uh, you know, Sean Dursey, Jordan Spence, and, and several others who played on the NHL this season, and others that might come up soon, like a Brand Clark, they all continue to take a step forward. You can see this as an organization that could steadily extend into the upper echelons of the NHL with Kevin Fiala being one of their cornerstone pieces. When I watched the Kings this year, they did a great job at really beating up the Red Wings when I saw them live. And and they did the same to teams when I watched them on TV. This was a team that did a good job of playing physical defensive hockey, but they needed more the scoring. skill wasn't there. Yeah, yeah the exactly. skill isn't there. They, they, won a, they won a lot of one-goal games. I think they might have led the NHL in terms of one-goal victories, which is not something that's typically sustainable over year to year. They just need more offense. And I think some of those guys – like those younger players, whether it's Kaliev, whether it's Byfield, you think there there's going to be more offense coming from the organization over time, but this is just kind of a, a way, of a way to to jumpstart that accelerant. Yeah, and so I think a really good environment for for Kevin Fiala to get to step into. I, I think he obviously there should be prime power play role available to him. He should get uh, whoever he's playing with, whether he's playing with Kopitar, Dano, or even Byfield. He's going to have a really good centerman to play with. So I like this. Uh, I like this from LA, and really, I like it from Minnesota for a couple of reasons too. Uh, not to go to the cliche, both teams win the deal or whatever, but but it's it's a good fit here for Minnesota. That's what I wrote in the trade grade I did. I said I gave both of them the same grade, so so I agree with you. Yeah, no, I mean, from Minnesota standpoint, you had to do this. It wasn't going to be tenable to keep Kevin Fiala at the money that it was going to cost, the the supplemental moves it was going to take to keep him. Um, partly because of the buyouts that they had with Ryan Suter and Zach Parise a year ago. But you also, looking ahead, can see the value. Brock Faber is, is a very mobile, tough, defending right shot D. You can obviously see looking a year ahead, hey, is this a potential Matt Dumba replacement for them? Um, and, and, and the ELC that he's going to bring is going to help them weather some of those tougher cap years in the wake of these buyouts. 
Right, it doesn't have the offense that Dumba has, but I still see a potential top four, if not a quality top four defenseman in the NHL, because his skating is, is excellent. It's clear NHL quality, even a, probably above average NHL quality. He competes well. And you saw at the Olympics when this guy's a 19 year old going up against men, and he was a go to player for Team USA when Jake Sanderson was, was out. Uh, you know, he's a very impressive young player. Even though the offense is never that significant, I still think this can be a tough minutes defenseman in the National Hockey League. Um, and to your point about Fiala is, and Bill Guerin talked about this in his press conferences, the moves they would have to make to make it work. And then you have to question, is it worth it? I love Fiala. He's a great player. But do you really want to jump through hoops and then give money to a winger who is an exceptional winger but is still not a premium position guy? And it didn't make sense to do all of that in terms of the moves and then give him a ton of money. It just this makes more sense. It gives him entry level guys. Nineteenth overall, still a reasonably high pick. Uh, Brock favors a guy who would be equivalent to a top ten pick in this year's draft. Uh, it's significant young capital into the organization, uh, and you'll see those guys come up right around the time when Marco Rossi is starting to come up, and we presume Boldy will play a bigger role on their team next season, and as, as well as maybe Walson and Lambos getting there some point in the next few years. How would you have how would you have stacked up Faber versus Brant Clark, who was the other big right shot D in their pipeline? It's probably close, I would say. But I'm guessing the, the Kings probably don't think that because they took Brant Clark right. in the top ten and they probably had him rated whatever top three, top five if you have him taken around there. It, on my personal ratings, they'd be really close to each other. Uh, both project this quality top four defense in the National Hockey League in different ways. Clark much more offensively tilted. And and favor much more defensively tilted, but but they're similar for me. And I think you look at that's another thing. They have a lot of good young defensemen. You know, you have Bjornfoot, Mikey Anderson, Sean Jersey was so good this year. Jordan Spence looked really impressive in a few games. Now you have Clark coming up, uh, and uh, I like uh, uh, the Russian they took last year, whose name is escaping me at this moment. Kursanov. Uh, Karol Kursanov. Yeah. So yeah, they have a lot of good young defensemen coming up. So I, I like that they. Operate from position of strength, and 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 did a move to try and get them into becoming a legitimate playoff team. Yeah, this is what people will talk about when when teams have the the farm system that the Kings had built up. It's it's you're not always going to be able to have room for all these guys, but they you know you, you staple it to the 19th pick and you you turn it into uh, really a point per game winger, somebody who's going to play uh, you know at the top of LA's lineup here. Do you so. think he's for sure a point per game winger going forward, or just? You're saying because he was this, this he, he was this season. I, I see him when I think about him as probably more of like a 60 to 70 point guy, but that's yeah, still yeah, a really valuable piece. Oh, yeah. No, he would have led, I think that would have led the Kings in scoring last year. So, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, no, I mean, he's, he's, he's an amazing player. So, I'm not sure. Point. Yeah, I think, and I don't think he got paid like that. You know, his contract probably reflects more that reality a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, he's, he's a hell of a hockey player. Well, and it's interesting too because the the question that people will raise with Fiala is the playoff score. It hasn't really been uh, there for him at these last, you know, in recently. Um, LA might be one of the teams, going back to how we started this, that can kind of deal with that because they have some of those guys who aren't going to score as much in the regular season and are going to find sure. their way to points in the playoffs. Right. You know, they obviously have Kopitar, great two way player, Denoe, great two way player down the middle. They just lack that dynamic ability on. Um, Somewhere in their forwards, you know, maybe you you think Byfield, you think maybe even Calia to a lesser extent, not really dynamic, just more of a smart goal scorer. But you definitely think Byfield could maybe extend to, to being that at some point. But he's not there yet. He's still taking some time. 
Um, so yeah, no, I mean, he, there's a clear fit for what Fial is in that organization, even if he lacks maybe the, I still think his compete is fine. Like he was killing penalties this past season. I don't think he's like a soft type of player. Just it's not, that's not what you're drafting him, not drafting, acquiring him for. It's for, it's for the exceptional skill and offensive hockey sense he has. So favor the centerpiece on the Minnesota side, but let's not forget about this night, this 19th overall pick, which is not a, it's not a, it's by no means a B asset. It's a, it's a really good asset to have. And it gives them uh, two picks in the top 25, right around, I think it's 19 and 24 are the two picks there. Right. What is this going to allow Minnesota now to do in, in the draft this summer? Right. So we see now in the seven round mock that I did that I end up giving them with, with those two picks, uh, Frank Nazar goes to them at the 19th pick and, and Rutger McGrory goes to them at the 24th pick. Uh, teammates at the program, two very different kind of players. Both, you know, the Wild in mind have typically valued these kind of players that compete at a very high level. There'll be teammates at Michigan too. Teammates at Michigan as well. That wasn't done as a as because of that. It just happened to be a coincidence. And that I typically find that the Wild value these high compete guys. And in the case of Nazar, guys who who have a lot of pace in in their games. And I think those are two guys who they drafted a lot of defensemen. They drafted a goalie last year. These are two guys who would really provide really good depth uh, to their young four group, both playing a hard game and providing skill as well. Yep. And you get obviously a little more of the speed with Nazar, a little more of the size and the heaviness and the shot with McGroarty. Uh, so it really helps them keep rounding out that core. And yeah, that too, you know, Marco Rossi, yeah, it's a boldy, Jesper Wallstead, Carson Lambos, Damon Hunt. You know, it's a nice core prospect. It's not an amazing core, but given where they've been picking over the last few years, I, I think you're you're really happy with that group of young players. And the fact that in Minnesota, you already kind of have your your superstar, your franchise player in Caprice right. Off and, and another guy who I think can be you know, potentially the second or third best player on a championship team and Matt Boldy, like it, it is good to start rounding out with these guys who you don't have to, I mean, I'm not saying these are not, you know, upside plays or whatever, but you don't have to be shooting for the moon. Right. And another thing on favor is their defensemen are getting quite old you know, on, on that team. You know, you need a next wave and Kalen Addison might be that, but he has to be used in a very specific way. Brock Faber does not need to be used in a very specific way. He's a well-rounded player. So I think you're excited to add a guy like that. You know, him, Carson Lambos, those guys are the future of the, of the wild blue line. The rumor, like, like like you alluded to earlier, the rumor often connected it with, with uh, Ottawa around the number seven pick. And I'm curious, would you have, and we don't know what this, what the supplemental, you know, little extra throw-ins would have been around the seventh pick, but how would you weigh this package against the idea of the seventh overall pick? Obviously, when you, when you say Faber had, it would, would have been a, you know, on par with kind of top 10 value in this draft. That makes me think you like this deal better than what the seventh overall pick would have been. It would be, it, it probably in aggregate because you're getting that extra first round pick in there too. Uh, I, based on the guys I have rated that highly, you know, Faber versus, let's say, let's say Kamel and Savoy, for example, it would be close. I would probably, uh, still lean to Savoy and Kemmel over Faber, but it's I would say it's close. Uh, I mean, just because I think Kemmel and Savoy have a little bit more upside there in terms of, in terms of the scoring ability. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I would take I would take Faber over Lekaramaki just based on where he is on my list. So I think you know he's, it's right in that in that grouping. And in the mock, it ends up right Faber and Nazar versus right Kemmel or Savoy or Lekaramaki. So uh, that value-wise, to me, seems like it would, would give the nudge of value there. Uh, anything else on this topic before we, uh, we move on to, to the real show, I guess, or the, the, the pre-recorded show here? No, I think that's it. Uh, thank you for listening to this addendum. 
We're less than a week away from the start of the 2022 NHL Draft. Uh, next Thursday, we will be in Montreal, and the picks are going to start flying, so it is certainly in, in full swing here, and fittingly, we've got a couple of uh, maybe more predictive topics on, on the podcast for today, Corey. We've got your seven-round mock draft uh, out this week, which is always one of my favorites because it's basically impossible, but I love to see uh, how many of them you can you can stick anyway. And we've got the... Uh, the the Bob McKenzie list always the probably the most accurate I think the the the, the compiled list of of ten scout opinions which gives you a really good sense for where the league is at so I want to jump right in with that stuff and I'll let you decide here do you want to go right into your seven round mock which has some spiciness at the top or do you want to get into McKenzie's list first uh, we can start with McKenzie just I think uh, I think he's earned it with with how credible his list is and how much it gets people in the NHL talking when, when that thing comes out. Not just among fans, but people in the league are read read that thing the second it comes out to get an idea of hey, will my guy be there or not at, at our pick? Well, then let's do it. And and he has the the league has I should say that these this sampling of ten scouts narrowly uh, Uri Slavkovsky at number one, which uh, I know you you are in the opinion that that's the, the lean as well. Um, and not too big a surprise, I don't think, for anyone in, in the top 10 here. You got Slavkovsky, Wright, Cooley, Nemitz, Cutter, Gautier, indeed, checks in at number five. You've been all over his rise. David Juracek, Joachim Kemmel, Lakaramaki at eight, Matt Savoy, nine, and Marco Kasper to round out the top 10. Nothing too shocking in there, I don't think. No, but yeah, I mean, we, there, there's been guys who have risen over the last few months. You mentioned Gautier, obviously Marco Kasper is a guy who's risen quite significantly over the second half of the season. Kevin Korczynski at number 11 there was a guy who rose to play over the second half of the season. But no, I don't think anything in there was truly startling. And, and I don't think it should be too startling. It's, you know, uh, if if hopefully if we've done our work as, as journalists leading into the draft, uh, and we'll see what actually happens on draft day. His his list is a good, really good predictor. It's not a perfect predictor though. So we'll see what actually happens on draft day. And as always, like, you know, especially when, you, when you're talking about number one, it doesn't matter what the industry consensus is. It matters what Montreal decides. And it still could very well be that on draft day, Montreal decides Shane Wright or even Logan Cooley here. Right. I mean, it's, it's an open question and it's a fun debate. And, it's, and, and, and because it's such an open question and people around the league have varying opinions on what they think is going to happen, some still think it'll be Shane Wright. I would say the slight majority of sources I talked to right now think it'll be Slavkovsky and, and even some do think Logan Cooley as well. So so we'll see. Uh, the one other thing I thought was interesting from Bob's list was the – I think when I was watching his show, he said Noah Oslin jumped up 25 spots or something from his mid-year list. And, and that reflects what I'm hearing around the league. I think most scouts I'm talking to right now think that Noah Oslin will, has a strong chance to be a top 20 pick in the upcoming draft. Uh, and he's a guy who we, I think we've kind of had the end of mock drafts and, and, and in our seven round mock draft that I, that I published, uh, he was well into the teens, which I think reflects what's actually going to happen on draft day. Yes. And we'll keep referring to, to that McKenzie list. I think as, as we go through the seven round mock and, and even deeper here, but let's, let's get into that because it was, it, it's even spicier than, than the rankings. I know people, you know, saw you move Savkovsky up to the top early. And, and obviously, like you said, now a slight majority uh, feel Savkovsky will be Montreal's pick. But in the top four here, it's got Mon- Slavkovsky going to Montreal, New Jersey with a big curveball taking David Juracek at two, something we've discussed a little bit on the show, but but you put it in the mock. 
Arizona with Logan Cooley at three, which drops Shane Wright all the way to four in Seattle. Can you take me through that whole shakeup? Right, and I, it, it is, might seem like we're being harsh on Shane Wright, but I think if he does not go first overall, I think he, there's, a, there's a range of possibilities there where he could be go between two to four, depending on you know, team's mild preferences. And in the case of New Jersey, I really, I, I hate projecting trades, especially in the top five. They're so rare. But this is one where it seems to make a lot of sense where I don't believe that's the direction they want to go. I don't think they want, that's their number one preference is to take right at two. So it does open the possibilities for trades there with that pick, maybe to an organization that, that does value right a lot that wants to go up and get him. But we're not predicting trades in this mock draft, so I give him one of the, def- the, def- the defensemen and David Yerichek. And then, like I said, with Arizona, I've heard mixed opinions on whether they would take right if if there or not. Some people, people think they would, some people think they wouldn't. Uh, so thus, they, he ends up going to Seattle. I can see him be a Coyote. I can see him be a Devil. And I could even see him be a Hap. Like, I, it's, it's, this is not – even though you got to put a, a player to a name – sorry, a, a, a player to a team in the mock draft – does not mean I'm sure on each of those scenarios. Right. So let's go back to the trade option because I think that's immediately where my head goes here is that if Shane Wright gets past one, maybe even two, I have to think the phones are ringing like crazy for Arizona and Seattle to have the opportunity to to move back. And those are both teams. Arizona's got a ton of picks. But Seattle, when you did your, your biggest needs article earlier this week, it was depth. I mean, is that not a team that could be very well suited to trade back here? It's possible, but you also look at Arizona and Seattle, and they they can use a high end forward in their organization too. They they both could use whether it's a premium center or a premium defense prospect. I think New Jersey is the one where it just that one just seems, seems the one that makes the most sense. Where you can have they seem to be very open to trading that pick. There are teams actively talking to them about that pick, and that just seems to be one where it's the most likely a scenario someone can make a trade to go up and get right. How far back could you see New Jersey being comfortable going if they were to move back rather than trading it for a player, I guess? It really depends on, on the assets that are coming back, right? I mean, I think internally they probably really want one of those top two defense prospects in, in Nemec or Juracek, but it depends what they're being offered. You know, if let's say, for example, we're talking about Kevin Fiala all of a sudden, it's or a premium young defenseman in the league, it, it could change things. Uh, so I guess it really depends on the package. All right. I like that. Uh, the next kind of thing that stood out to me is a few of the, the names who slipped into the 20s there. Denton Matejchuk at 25, Brad Lambert at 29. We've talked about kind of the maybe the little bit of a gap between the public sphere on Lambert compared to the NHL. Matejchuk getting that deep into the 20s really surprised me. I just think it's um... – when you start going through the process and you start, you understand what teams typically value. Five eleven defensemen don't typically go that high in the draft unless they're incredibly dynamic, which I probably wouldn't describe Matejchuk as as being. Even though I I like the player, I personally would take him higher. Just just based on the history of the draft, that's just where five eleven defensemen tend to go. They go in the twenties, and I think there's enough guys who have risen, or I what I'm hearing teams just like more in on average that. That's the direction I think that that will go. And then Nathan Gaucher obviously is is one of the big risers here, up to number thirteen to the Islanders. Uh, is that that's the buzz, I assume. Yeah, just like I said, I think there was. I'm not saying it's a lock, but as we kind of get closer, just 
centers with size, and there's enough teams out there who believe, believe he has offense, and he's a two-way guy. I, it just the kind of thing you usually would imagine from a guy who probably goes higher than you ex- than where the consensus would have him. That he checks a lot of those boxes, and that's just a guy I've been told by quite a few NHL people to keep an eye on as we get closer to draft day to to go higher than people expect. Same thing with Oslin, two very different players, mind you, but both being uh, players that at least some teams believe can be top two line centers in the NHL. The Gauthier one was one of the interesting ones to me, though, because when you look at the McKenzie list, he's still down there. At, I think it's yeah. 28 for, for him. And so that one strikes me as maybe maybe that's reflective of the difference of, you know, scout to scout, how wide the variance is. Correct. Because I do talk to some scouts who have him there, who wouldn't take him in the first round. And I talk to some scouts who, who love the player. And if I pull 10 scouts, maybe I have him in a different spot. But I'm just going based on what I'm hearing right now. And from what I'm hearing from people in the QMJHL and in the NHL, is that he's? I think they think he's going to be a top twenty pick. And the Matejchuk, for what it's worth, was almost bang on with with the McKenzie list. I think he was at twenty four in that one. Lambert more in the teens compared to the back half of the twenties. There, I don't want to ask you to go through basically, you know, three picks from every round here, but I am curious. Sometimes throughout the process, I know you pick up little tidbits, little connections from team to team, or or it just the slotting really makes sense. Are there any spots in this draft, any team player fits that you feel? really good about having done this seven-round mock? I mean, yes. <laughs> I can't particularly say which ones for, for which reasons because of that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you start hearing things when you get closer to the draft. Like, hey, this team's this high on this guy. This team is lower on this, on this guy. Or you, you know, particularly now that we're back live scouting a lot, you see a lot of decision makers pop up at a certain guy's games a lot in the spring. For example, I, I wrote it in the mock draft about how, for example, that I a lot of Anaheim folks were spotted going to Korchinski games late in the season. Could have been for Reed Schaefer, too, for all I know, or Jordan Gustafson. Yep. They had plenty of draft eligibles on that team, but I presume it was because of Korchinski and, and their decision to make it the 10th overall pick. Uh, that's just one example, though, and there's other examples of, of things you hear throughout the draft season in terms of, terms of teams and players. Since you mentioned Schaefer, I thought that was an interesting one, uh, especially when we talk about the differences between this mock and, and the McKenzie list. I think 37 is where he clocks in uh, on the McKenzie rankings. You've got him in the first round there, uh, going at number 27 to Arizona. Um, what do you think explains kind of that that difference? Is it is it is it people feeling like is it is it harsh differences or maybe uncertainty over where he's going to go? I think some people are just concerned that the talent level with his game isn't overly high. He's not an amazing skater. He's got skill, but it's not incredible skill. So I think there's quite a few scouts I talk to who just don't believe in in the overall talent level. But there's quite a few I talk to who do. And I, and I, as we get closer to the draft, I feel increasingly more confident he is going to be a first rounder. He might even go higher than 27, from what I've heard going into the, going into my research here. Uh, so yeah, I think that's one where I would, I would, if you gave me an over under, I would bet in the direction of, of him going uh, into, into the first round. Really? That's the case kind of here with, with a lot of your guys at the back of the first round. So I'm just going to go name by name here and you can kind of tell me where the battle lines are being drawn. Philip Bystead, you've got him at 28 to Buffalo. Uh, McKenzie's got him at 42. It's possible you slide to the second round because he didn't have an amazing season, but there's just so few players in the draft that look like this. He's a 6'3 center. He's an NHL caliber skater, and there is some offense there. And I just think when you, but you look at that, when you look at that back half of the first, you look at all the guys going in the 20s. There's not a whole lot of natural centers that are going in that in that range. I mean, you've basically got maybe Luca Del Bell Blues, who could be a center. Not everybody's convinced. 
was an NHL center. You got Frank Nazar there, and really that's it. So I think somebody eventually somebody's going to talk themselves into you know wanting a wanting a center, and I think this is a guy for at least. I've talked to some teams who have him right as a first rounder, and I think I I just think someone's going to talk themselves into taking him just because the tools are so good. Brad Lambert, obviously, we've discussed uh, plenty on this show, and I think people have some familiarity and on, on plenty of familiarity really on, on him. It's the opposite way on Lambert. You've got him at 29. He, he's 16 on the McKenzie list. This one, it strikes me as a player who there's just going to be some team that really is willing to take the swing and a lot of teams who they might really like the tools. They're just going to be hesitant or he, he'll be he'll lose a tie break to, to several guys. Yeah, in my internal thought process, like I – I think he should go higher. Just because I want to know about the player and and you ranked you, him higher. Obviously. Yes, yeah, and and you look at historically where guys who have a tough draft season or have issues surrounding their draft seasons go, and it's usually around the twenty to twenty five spot. You look at where Fabian Lassell went; it was around twenty. Look where Ryan Merkley went; it was around twenty. Josh Hosank around twenty five, twenty eight ish. Uh, D'Angelo was right around twenty. So that's. That's typically where those guys tend to go when they're supremely talented, but there's some noise around them that, that concerns teams. But I just looked at that array of teams that was in that range, and I, and I just couldn't find a, a spot for him. That being said, I would not have predicted Lissell to be a Bruins pick last season, and, the, and there were. So it only takes one who convinced themselves that, hey, we're not as worried about this guy. We've done our character research. We're fine. Or we just really need scoring, and he's a scorer. He's really talented, and this is the year we're taking that risk. So I think, in my mind, he should go higher than 29, but just when I was going through the seven-round mock process, based on what I know, I, I just didn't feel comfortable getting him at any spot until then. Well, and it is interesting because a lot of times th- this is the kind of you know dynamic you would associate with a team that has multiple picks, but because of the, kind of the risk factor associated with a couple of these Russian players, you've already got like Buffalo at sixteen is kind of taking that that risk swing on Danila Yurov, and right. so so maybe that slides it, and then you don't get into those multi pick teams again it, really until that that twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight with Montreal, Arizona, Buffalo. You've got them obviously going right past that to, to Edmonton. So I, I get what you're going for there. Yep. And, you know, and we'll see what happens on draft day. All right. So now I want to talk about one of the articles you did earlier in the week. And that's you, you, you kind of wrote about each team's biggest need in this draft. And and certainly there's the perpetual conversation. Do you draft for best player available? Do you draft for need? How much do you think about this? First, I guess we should clarify, when you say need, you're not talking about on the NHL roster today. Although some cases it can be both. But you're talking about as you look at the farm system and and so I think that's important, first of all, because one of the common refrains is, you know, why are you drafting for a need that, you know, might not be there in five years? You you are already looking at, at the farm system when you do these. Right. It's more of a five-year need than a current need. Right. And and so – but I think it's still a really good um, exercise to go through because as much as, yes, every team's going to say they're picking for the best player available, um, the, the perfect situation obviously is when – the best player available fits your need. And so I, I've kind of gone through and I picked some teams who I think are maybe in the best spot as I see it uh, to blend their need with a, some legit best player available candidates. And, and that starts at the very top for me with, with Arizona at number three. Yeah. And a spoiler alert, teams say that, but I have many, many anecdotes where I can tell you they don't <laughs> always take the best player available. They they do incorporate need. So just it, that's that's a myth, I would say. Yeah, and so these are the teams that are in the best position to not have to lie, right? They can they can honestly say they they got their 
their need. And they had a, a guy who at least many people would say has a chance to be the best player available. We'll get to Montreal because they're an interesting case. But let's start with, with at number three with Arizona. It seems like in, unless there's a little bit of a surprise, they're going to be in a position to add either Shane Wright or Logan Cooley at number three, which is a, really a perfect fit for what they need. Right. Unless, like I said, unless... You know, Montreal takes one of Wright or Cooley at one, and then either New Jersey surprises people and takes one of them, or they trade the pick to somebody who would take one of them there as well. I agree. It would it seems likely to have a chance to address center in the organization. And, they, and I still like Barrett Hayden. I think he's going to be a good player for a long time. But after him, it, it drops off, and it it's not really clear what else is in the organization. Maybe, you know, Jan Yannick is a nice prospect i think he's going to be you know a potential third liner in the, in the league but in terms of guys who play high in the lineup score in a, in a legitimate way in the nhl uh, yes they're in a prime position to to address that in a, in a really important way and ultimately let's say it gets a little let, let's say it does go that way it goes coolly right or something in, in some combination and they they, they decide okay then we're gonna take the yuri slavkovsky there they also have the ammo that if they wanted to make a move up the board later in the round, they they have plenty of ammo that they could get up and get an, another pretty good center there, even in like the early teens. I don't think they'd get back into the top 10, but early teens, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. All right. The next one that jumps out is, is Anaheim uh, at number 10. And, and to me, that seems like prime defenseman territory. You've got that as their number one need, whether it's Korchinski, which I know you were just alluding to, whether it's Minchikov, they seem perfectly positioned. Uh, to do this. I, I do think, you know, there may be some people who say, hey, they've already got Jamie Drysdale, Olin Zellweger there. What would you say to that? Well, they just traded away Hampus Lidholm. They just traded away Josh Manson. Uh, yes, I love Jamie Drysdale, and I think Olin Zellweger looks very promising as a prospect, but you need more than those guys. You know, you've got to imagine Cam Fowler is not going to be a, a big part of the next contending Anaheim Ducks team. I love to be proven wrong, but just with the way, you know, just when his age will get up there eventually. So you have to rebuild that blue line for future years. And, you know, they've done a really good job with the forwards. Trevor Zegers, Mason McTavish look like fantastic prospects. They have some good pieces, other young pieces at forward. But it just seems to me like this is the most pressing need of the organization to add yet another premium young defense prospect. These are also different young defensemen than the ones that they have, right? When you talk about a, a Drysdale and a Zellweger, uh, Pat Verbeek comes from the the Steve Eiserman uh, teams that that have built with size on the back end. And so right. I think when you when you talk about a Korchinski or a Minshikov, that's a different look, even though they're all offensively gifted than you're right. getting from a Drysdale or a Zellweger. Right. They're not exactly hard to play against, you know, great defending type of defensemen, but you just presume given their size and mobility, particularly with Korchinski, that they'll find a way to be more reliable defensively than an Olin Zellweger will be as a pro. Kind of a similar conversation, I think, in Columbus, where you've got D as their big need. Obviously, for so long it was center there, um, but they did do a long go, to go a long way toward addressing that um, last year by by picking up Sillinger and Kent Johnson, who we'll see if he's a center or a wing. But especially with two picks in the top twelve, you've got them uh, with their big need as a D. What I want to ask is is how sure are you that that how 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 positive do you feel that that's where you think the big need is? Because they all have also added Adam sure. Boakvist. They picked Corson Kuhlman's last year. They got Jake Bean. In addition to having a young number one already in Zach Wierenski. Right. It doesn't mean, biggest need doesn't mean that you are completely deficient. And for some of the organizations that I listed, it, they were completely deficient. And for some, 
you know, like say, you know, teams with a lot of prospects such as you know, Montreal or Los Angeles, they, they just have to, you got to pick something. Uh, and with Columbus, I would argue that Boakfist, Kuhlman's, Bean don't rise to the highest levels of, of young talent. There may be, I think Adam Boakfist looked really impressive, scored a, a lot this season in the NHL, uh, but he's not a great two-way player. And I think you can kind of pick apart all three of those guys if you want to for and say I think they're all very good young players, probably not the premium young players like Ken Johnson is, like Cole Sillinger is. So this is just about adding or he's using this opportunity with the 6 and the 12 pick to add what is a premium young defense prospect into the organization. I don't think you gave anybody for their biggest need winger. There was one team, Tampa, that had scoring forwards. Seattle, I think, had depth. Why? Yeah. Not? I mean, Columbus, to me, if there is one, that would be one of the teams I would look to and say winger might be the need. It's possible. It, I just from, I guess, the experience of doing this, it just feels like that nobody ever feels like they have a need on the wing. And I, I think management types will always tell you if we ever do have a need, those can be easily replenished by uh, yeah. a trade and free agency. But the draft for a lot of teams is about getting premium players, which is you know really good centers, really good defensemen. And if you do go the winger route, it's because you feel they have a chance to be top six forwards, top six wingers, mind you, in the NHL. Nobody's picking want to pick wants to pick a third line winger in the in the first round, for example. All right, so let's go to the D spot for Columbus then. And I think you've got him taking Simon Nemitz in the seven-round mock here. A reasonable chance that they come away with either him or David Juracek at that sixth spot. Um, but they also have the pick at number 12. And and having already acquired Boakvis and drafted Corson Kuhlman's a year ago, how much better do you see as the options? Uh, Nemitz and, and Juracek obviously are going to be the number one right shot D prospect. How how big would the gap be between one of those two and a Boakvist or a Kuhlman's? I would have both as the head of Kuhlman's. Uh, so in comparing those two, I would say Yerichek and Nemich are both superior young players. They are not dramatically superior young players. But I think what they will add that both of doesn't is you can at least, especially with Yerichek, is you can envision them being more two-way defensemen in the NHL, guys who play both your power play and your penalty kill. And uh, I think that's kind of the question, open question with both of us right now is can he kill penalties in the NHL? Can he play against good players in the NHL? Whereas I think with those two, even though I don't think they're dramatically better overall as players, they just will offer more elements and make it easier on a coach to use them. And if uh, if the if it doesn't play out at the top where they're able to get one of those two guys, let's say Cutter Gauthier falls into into their lap there, I think that's an easy pick for them to make. They still have a pretty good shot at 12 if they want to go for a Minchikov, for a Bischel, for an Owen Pickering type, I think, there. And Korchinski could very well be there too. Yes. All right, the last team, uh, I guess let's do Montreal here because I, I put them here. I, I, you, you have their top need as center, and I still put them here. But the debate being, obviously, Shane Wright would be, you know, you're, you're picking number one. You have every opportunity to add your guy. But sure. I'm curious, do you feel like they really belong here, knowing the debate between Slavkovsky and Wright? Do they belong in this perfectly positioned? Because we've talked about the sleepless nights that this front office may very well be having right, right now. We talked about this earlier in that some teams were – easier to find a need for somewhere harder and in Montreal their needs are everything pretty much they have a lot of good defense prospects they don't have a lot of premium defense prospects they don't have premium four prospects now that Suzuki and, and Caulfield are up even though I would consider them premium young players they need more of them they need a goalie of the future they need everything 
So while looking through the organization, because they have some good defense prospects and because they have a couple of wingers that look interesting, particularly obviously Caulfield at, at the highest end of it, I chose center. But they need a lot of things. So I, I don't think it's their, their need at center is so above and beyond everything else. The other team that I put in this category, just we'll move quickly here, but uh, it was Nashville. At 17, you got him with, with Bischel, but Pickering, uh, Chesley, Matejchuk, all still on the board there. So I felt like that was another one that's well positioned to address their need with a potential best player available. Let's go now to the other side of this question, though. The teams who are in the toughest spot to blend the potential best players available with their need. The thing that jumps out right away is anybody who needs a goalie. I think that you had the, the teams whose biggest need was a goalie were, I think, New Jersey, L.A., San Jose, and Washington. Uh, you may get one in the second or third round that you really like, but you're not in a good spot in the first round to do this no matter who you are. Yeah, you're probably not drafting your goalie of the future this year. doesn't mean we still think there's going to be one or two starting goalies that come out of this draft. I just can't tell you with, with great confidence who those names are going to be. It's the likeliest names are Tyler Brennan or Tobias Leinen, but it very well could be somebody else. And yes, if you're sitting here and you don't like your goalie situation and you think we need we need the guy of the future, the guy who's going to play 50, 60 games for us for the next 10 years, I'm not so sure that you can confidently identify that guy in this draft class. I said Pittsburgh was another one here. Pittsburgh, the, the team obviously need being D, uh, that, you, that you wrote this week. They do have Chesley and Matejchuk going shortly after their pick uh, in, in your mock, but what do you think? Is Pittsburgh's, I mean, I think you've got them with Mira Shashenko, right? Yeah, it's a, but I think there is, if they decide they don't want to go the Russian route, then I, I think they are in, in a potential spot there at, in the 20th. Again, like Montreal, they in, in much, for much different reasons, is they have a lot of needs because they've never had any draft picks over the last few years. So, yeah, they need defensemen, but they they also need centers, and they need wingers, and they need – and actually the only really need they don't really need is a goalie because I like Blomqvist. Uh, but, but, I mean, they could address defensemen, I think, at the 20s, but they need everything. So uh, just just due to how few picks they've had in, over the last, really, 10 years. Matejchuk did stand out to me as one for them. You know, we'll see what happens with Chris Letang, but almost right. regardless of whether he stays or goes, a potential heir to Chris Letang would be high atop Pittsburgh's long-term. Right. Trust. I mean, Letang might be a high projection for, for Matejchuk, but I get what sure, you're going to yeah, say yeah. in terms of somebody who could run a power play for them. Yes, I, that would, I, I think that one could make some sense, yes. The other team I had here that's, I think, in a tough spot to address their need is Ottawa. You've got their need as D. They're at seven. I, I don't think either of the two big D are making it to seven. It's probably not crazy to go it, for a Korchinski or a, or a Minchikov, but it's still kind of in between there. Right. Well, it's not impossible, though. Like We've talked about there being a consensus six, but all it takes is one name breaking into that consensus, yes. and, all, and, and it opens up those possibilities. It all takes is one team convincing themselves that maybe Kamel or Matthew Savoy or Marco Casper belongs in that top group, and all of a sudden David Yerchek or Simon Nemesis is there at seven. Uh, so it's possible, and they have good defensemen too. So again, this is an organization that's like, um, like say Los Angeles, like I mentioned before, has had so many draft picks because obviously they have Jake Sanderson coming. They have Thomas Chabon in the big club. They picked used the first one, Lassie Thompson, who had a good season this year. I think Clevin's going to play too. So they don't lack defensemen, but I, if I had to pick between their young forwards and young defensemen, I think they need one more young defensemen to really round out that rebuild. All right, Corey, I, I am going to just keep stealing stuff that you've already published this week because it's great fodder here. But the last thing I wanted to talk about came out Wednesday. 
you and Scott Wheeler did a dueling draft here, your your NHL draft super teams where you alternated picks here. Uh, first of all, how did Scott get the first pick and then you didn't get, you know, stacked snake picks at two and three? Yeah, no, I, I think the, the system was rigged against me for sure for, by, the, by the moderator, a.k.a. my editor. Uh, but I did want to just see what your impressions were at the end of this thing. You both came out with obviously very good teams. You got the, you know, the top 40 prospects in the draft between you. Um, I would say Scott's team has the edge at center. Uh, but I, I really like your scores and, and I got, obviously you got some really good young defensemen. How do you stack up these two teams looking at them after the fact? Well, obviously I'm biased in that, you know, like any draft, like whenever, whenever anybody has, this applies to really any draft concept, whether it's your, fantasy drafts when you guys play fantasy sports or when that and it when actual pro teams draft and they get done everybody loves their draft because they got all the players they wanted not every maybe not every single player but you typically get guys you, you've targeted and are happy with so i think my team is in great shape uh, i think uh you know i think i've got you know i've got the small skills there with, with Joachim kamel and jonathan lekaramaki yuri coolidge but i've also got uh, you know some a, a lot of you know two-way guys guys who play hard and i think i've got on my blue line, I have the skilled puck movers and Bate, Chuck, Nemec, Michikov, and I also have guys who play hard and can kill penalties. So I think my team's really well-rounded, fit a lot of roles. I felt like Scott's team, there's a lot of guys who play power play, but there's only 10 guys who could be on a power play uh, between <laughs> two units. So I feel like my team would, over the long haul, maybe not have the best individual shifts, but over the long haul would would win the most games. I one thing I, I loved was watching you two very clearly play your boards in a way you you know you have the advantage that NHL teams never do, which is right. knowing exactly what the other person thinks of all these players. You've already done kind of debates on some of these guys. You know, you, you let Cutter Gautier fall to you much later than he we think he'd go in a real thing, or even where you'd probably feel comfortable passing on him sure. uh, in a real draft. And, and it's probably similar with Marco Casper. That's at that key position, right? But Scott's eating up centers, and you know he's a little lower on Gautier and Casper than you. Can you just talk about that aspect of things? And what's the closest approximation of that to a real draft? Right. No, I mean, you saw each other's list and it was just a matter of gaming it a little bit. I didn't, you know, your check was my top defenseman, but I took Nemec first because I know he preferred Nemec and I knew it wasn't going to get him later. It's just like little things like that, which which made it fun. Uh, but that kind of stuff does play into the an actual NHL draft. I have heard stories of teams that, especially if they have two picks that are within close proximity of each other and if they have two players that are rated really close, but they might have one, the player that's rated the lowest they feel uh, they have the uh, not as good chance of getting with this, that later pick. They'll pick him first and then hopefully get their higher rated player with their second pick. I have heard stories of teams both attempting it and executing that. Successfully. Yes. Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, maybe one day I can reveal those names, but uh, I've heard actually several stories of that happening. Well, I enjoyed uh, watching this one go back and forth, and I, I certainly am casting my vote among the people in the comments who think we need a, a revisit a revisit on this, whether it's a redraft or whether it's plugging it into into Dom's model in, in a few I, years and see who right. came out ahead. I was thinking about that one, yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break right there. We'll be right back with our mailbag. All right, Corey, we've got a packed mailbag today. Uh, it starts with a good one from Tyler Blasinski. 
Do you think if the Canadians actually take Slavkovsky that the Devils are more likely to trade that second overall pick as the demand might be higher for Wright? Wright could really help a lot of rebuilding teams. We touched on this one a little bit already in the show. What would you put the odds at, though, that if if Slavkovsky is Montreal's number one pick, what would you put the odds at that the Devils trade versus keep that pick? I would guess two-thirds chance they keep the pick just because for a couple of reasons. Trades that high in the draft are extremely rare. Uh, particularly at second overall, you know, relative to maybe closer to 10. And the second one is it would require a team that is super passionate about trading up for somebody, whether it is Shane Wright, whether it's Logan Cooley or someone else in this scenario he's asking about Wright. And I just don't sense that kind of enthusiasm going into the draft. That There's a reason why Slavkovsky could potentially go one is that the enthusiasm bubble around right among NHL people has kind of popped a little bit. doesn't mean there's still teams that don't really like him, that think he'll be a great player, but I don't know if they're willing to shake heaven and earth and give up major assets to go up and get him, even though I think there's still probably a minority that would. So it's why I would say I think two-thirds chance if Slavkovsky goes one that the Devils make their pick. I'm going to combine two of them for this next one from Trotani, who says, would the second tier of defensemen behind Nemitz and Juracek be a reach for teams picking in the back half of the top 10, or do they fit there as BPA? I'm going to merge that one with this one from Remember Lafleur, who said, Korchinski and Minchikov are pretty close in most, in most rankings. What would be the strengths of their game that would put one in front of the other, depending on what teams are prioritizing, which one has the highest ceiling? I'm merging them because I think these are the two guys who could potentially make sense late in the I, top 10. I mean, I would not be surprised if either Ottawa or Detroit picked Korchinski or Minchikov. I think those are, those are, I think those are very, I mean, you cover the Red Wings, so you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think even though they did pick just pick Evans and Insider, is, I think that is, in the realm of possibilities. It may yep. not be the most likely scenario, but it's in the realm of possibilities, I think. I think you're right about that. And, and I, I think ultimately, you know, we've talked about Ottawa. Okay, they're a little stronger on the left side, but Shabbat's old enough that I don't think you can let that, you know, get in too much here. And Detroit still has plenty. Like, they've got some really good left shot D prospects. You know, I, I like Johansson. I like Shai Bouillam. They Wallinder had a really good year. I don't think any of those guys are in that tier of Korchinski or Minchikov, though. Right. So it just depends where they are on their list. Um, in terms of Korchinski and Mityakov, except what separates them, they're very similar in terms of the size, the skating, the offense. I would say that Mityakov may have a little bit better of a shot, uh, whereas I think with uh, Korchinski, just I think there's just a little bit more of exciting excitement with his growth and his trajectory. That you know, he's nearly a full year younger than than Mityakov, and arguably was just as good this season, if not better. And just seems to get better as the season went along, played a big role on a, on a top team. I just think generally in the league, there's just more excitement about, about where his game could go. With Minchikov, there is kind of a physicality element uh, to him that I think is fun too, especially when you talk about the, you know, obviously neither of them are, are great defensively right now. Sure. But I do think that's one one kind of uh, important element that if you're going to project the good defensive, it, being willing to make those hits is a big part yeah, of it. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. He does play a heavy game. Yeah. All right. Uh, Robert says Anaheim has four of the top 53 picks. Do you think those picks are better suited being combined to move around the draft to get who you want if you can? Or do you want as many shots at picks you can get? Uh, Edwin Rodriguez asked a similar question about Buffalo's three first, but we can really kind of make this a philosophical one. But if you have anything to say about Anaheim or Buffalo, I'm sure Robert and Edwin would appreciate it. It really depends. I think when it comes to the draft, the way I talked about this last week is 
the, the way to succeed in, in, in any draft, I think, is to either pick high or pick often. So I don't know if trying to package picks to get up into another pick in the 20s is really all that productive. You're probably just, you know, moving decimal points there in terms of your percentages, a six percentage chance of success. Uh, you know, I think getting lots of picks is usually an avenue, or if you find a way to get into the upper echelon of the draft, that is how you have success as well. So it just it depends on the trade, and uh, you have those assets. I, I would guess most teams make the picks they have, and I think having a lot of draft picks just just helps in that regard. I think it was a great example that I was thinking about the other day because I was doing that 2012 redraft that I published this past week. Uh, there was a rumor... Uh, I, th- I think it might have been reported, I could, but I forgot whether it was just a rumor or it was actually reported, uh, that the Islanders had offered all of their draft picks to Columbus to go up and get the second overall pick. Uh, uh, and obviously that didn't happen. But if that had happened, uh, they would have lost out on the opportunity with one of their many draft picks to pick Adam Pellick, who became one of the best players in that draft. You never know when you have that many opportunities, which one is going to be the, the one that produces a lot of value. Uh, so you just you, you just try your best and take as many shots as you can and, and we see what happens in five years. And as you've written, like with team lists, like, you know, they might only be 70 names long, but you might be getting guys who are in your top 50 in the sixth and seventh round feasibly. Right. And when you have, you know, like say Arizona, where they have, what is it, like five or six picks in the top 60? They'll probably get six guys in their top twenty twenty five. That's just, and you you probably really excited with your class, uh, but we'll see whether that excitement is reality a few years down the line. Yeah, Christian Harris says it seems like there's a consensus top six in this year's draft. Certainly, we've talked about that on this show. Uh, who would you say is in that next tier of players? How long is that tier? I, I want to specifically focus on the length of it because we can go look at the rankings and, and, and mostly see who who it is. But how long is the second tier of the draft after that top six? I know there's many tiers kind of within that too. Yeah, like it's almost hard to define that because I think every, it depends on who you ask that. There's names that, are, that go in and out. Some would say, you know, Lekromaki separated himself higher. Some would say Savoy separated himself or Kamel. Some would say they're in that next group. Some would say you know they're well into that next group. Is Geeky in there? Is Korchinski or Michikov in there? Marco Kasper, Daniela Yurov, Noah Oslin. There's all kinds of guys you can kind of argue in and out. I think that's why. I think after you get past Columbus's pick in this draft, the draft really opens up and it becomes very hard to predict what's going to happen. All right, but like 16? Or so, 16 or 17 for that next tier? I'm trying to get him an answer here. <laughs> well, 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 for me, it's like five or six that I have a kind of – I have a grouping of me personally. But in the league, it's hard to give you an answer. Maybe 10 to 12, I would say. But it's okay. just spitballing. But it's, it's really hard to say. 10 to 12 more names, not the 10th or 12th pick. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So around, around the, the, the mid to late teens there. Uh, Travis Ram says, what are the material differences between Cooley and Nazar that would leave them ranked quite differently? Similar size and production. Nazar also fairly skilled. Good motor, creates chances. It's probably the difference between fairly skilled and dynamically skilled, right? Right. And that's my opinion is I just think there's just more offensive gifts in Cooley that I think he's a better puck handler. He's a better playmaker. He has a better shot. 
There's just, I think, just more natural offense there. But the questioner raises a reasonable point and one that I've thought about and many scouts I've talked to have thought about is if Cooley is so much more skilled, why is their scoring so similar? Um, I think that comes down to, I hate, and you hate just reverting to that, is just, just watch them and watch their games and you can see who's driving the play with the NTDP more consistently. Uh, but it's a, it's a fair question, but that would be my, my answer. So it's just, just from watching these players, it's just one is just much more naturally offensively talented. John says, if you knew with 100% certainty that Lane Hudson would have a growth spurt to be 5'10", 5'11", where would you take him? I usually hate these questions. Sure. Because if a guy was three inches taller, then he'd be a different guy. It's a different question. But correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't Lane Hudson show up with documentation that his bone age is younger than his real age? So I think this one's relevant. Yeah, I think that's probably where this question is coming from. Maybe a little bit too. And I've heard this story before over the years with players other than Lane Hudson you know, whatever, their bone age, they're taking HGH, their father's, you know, th- this tall, so he's going to get that tall soon. It, it's it's tough to say. <laughs> Obviously, I would presume he's not going to grow. Uh, but just to answer the question, if he was that tall, with his hockey sense, presuming his skating doesn't take much of a jump, um... Top 10 to 12, I would say. Uh, probably not. I don't think he's upper, upper echelon of the draft, but he's probably in that that very ambiguous next group we were just talking about. In the conversation for the third D. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I like that. Uh, Adam Steer said, how likely is it the Flyers take a swing on a pure goal scorer in Joachim Kemmel at number five? We could probably lump LeCaramaki, maybe even Matt Savoy into that too, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think it's possible. They need offense in the organization. I, I would argue they need centers, and I guess the question will come down to do they think Karagothi is a center or not? Do they value Marco Casper that highly or not? But yeah, they need offense in the organization. So I, I don't think you can rule anything out if you think either Kamel, Lekaramaki, or Savoy is the best player available. Logan Horn has a philosophical one, and I think it's a good one. He says, a question on how to become a better scout. I find that I fall in love with Nearly every prospect I evaluate only been taking scouting seriously for a few months. And I think they're all great. Any advice on learning how to differentiate and be more critical in his scouting? This is a great question. Yeah, no, I, I really liked it. And, and it, you know, I, um, I think I went through similar issues when I started and it's tough, right? Cause I think what I could tell Logan in, in this instance is there's no great way to f- solve that problem other than with time. In that, just like with any discipline, you you start off, you try things, you make mistakes, and you learn from them. It's especially when you're coming to long-term projection of of humans. Is you you won't know how wrong you are until you actually get it wrong, and then you'll realize, oh, hey, I I thought this was a good player, but he's actually not. And I think the NHL draft and all of drafts and all sports will will humble you in that regard, just because. I think when you evaluate a whole draft class and you put out a list and you say, these are the guys I like, and then five, six years passes and so many of them miss, you'll realize how high the bar is to make the National Hockey League, how difficult it is to project who makes the National Hockey League. And and you can learn from that. And I've had that from just my making many lists and making a lot of things wrong. And I've had feedback from scouts too that have kind of pushed me down that road where 
uh, I've had like one more scattermind who's a good friend would always like kind of tell me a few years ago that I, I like too many players, that I'm being too nice to too many players. And it, I don't think he meant be mean, but, but be more selective, you know, you, and I think calibration comes into that too, where I think knowing the math of the draft is very important. You, you know that if you have a list and you're really passionate about 50 players, you're probably off by a margin of about 50% because only about 30 or so players every year become good NHL players. So you have to calibrate that. You got to be more selective. And I think it's just a matter of that kind of philosophy and just learning through time of what players that people get all excited about, about the draft actually end up becoming good and actually end up not becoming good. And then you have the fun experience of having had your heart broken and being a little more cynical about a player type. And then this next guy is the one that actually does hit after you've kind of decided out oh, that maybe that doesn't work. Yeah, no, there's no perfect science behind it. There's, you know, I think I always get this question like, oh, I just always draft the small skill guy. Cause those are the ones that make it. And then Jacob Slavin becomes the second best player in the 2012 draft. So it's, there is, there's no perfect science behind it. Yeah. Rick M says, Corey, I saw your 2012 redraft article and enjoyed the look back. What, if any, are some real life lessons learned where teams avoided a certain draft eligible player because they had similar qualities of former highly drafted busts? It's exactly what we were just talking about. Any players come to mind? Yeah, I think Griffin Reinhardt was probably the end of simple defensemen going really high in the draft. I haven't seen anything like that really since where a Griffin Reinhardt style player went that high his mobility was never amazing his skill level was never amazing he was just big and physical and intelligent and he played really well at the junior level and i I think that i think that one is the one that immediately comes to mind of someone who scared people away a little bit uh you know other ones like yakupov everyone has everyone's a genius in hindsight on that one but that guy was unreal as a junior player. He was he was electric in the in those OHL games, and Gauchenyuk was really talented. And Ryan Murray had an excellent junior career. So it's it's hard to be too critical about those picks. They just ended up didn't working out. But Ryan Hart's the one that comes to mind that you could take away some lessons that you just need more talent if you're picking in the top five, which is you know harkens to this draft. And those are some of the things we're talking about in this draft when we when we talk about Slavkovsky. And Cooley versus some of the alternatives is like, you know, do you reach for boring? Do you draft boring high or do you draft talent high? And I'll be curious to see what happens in a week from now. Chris M says, which prospect from the 2021 draft has raised their stock the most after this most recent season? He lists Sillinger, Johnston, Zellweger, Joshua Wah, or you can also add someone else in there. I think those are all the ones that make sense. I'm sure some Dallas fans will probably say Stan Coven, which I think you can argue he should. I think he'd go in the first round if we did that draft. I don't think I don't know if he's going to go high in the first round, but Stan Coven probably belongs in there too. Uh, so two Dallas guys there with with him and Johnson, and then the last one is from Stay Fresh Cheese Bags, who wants your best Steve Eiserman story and what you think he'll do next Thursday. I feel like everybody thinks they're going to take Casper, and it's become like such a such a almost. <laughs> uh, consensus opinion that I feel like it's not going to happen, right? Yeah, that is tend- typically how it tends to go. I thought, I mean, you you have Savoy going right ahead of them, but I do think he's another guy who I think should probably be treated similarly to Casper in terms of that conversation, but he may not be on the board. No, he may or may not. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. All right, in terms of the best story, do you have a good story you want, or do you want me to tell, me, tell my story first? Well, 
I know your story. Your story is a little better, but I can just tell you a warm up because I don't want to follow yours. Sure. Um, there was a game this year. It was in Carolina, and Philip Hironic, uh high sticked a guy uh, on his on a follow through. Like his stick hit a guy on a follow through, and and I just didn't know that 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 negated it. I, that I should have known that I didn't, and and I was going back and, and I didn't just tweet the Red Wings got away with one on Philip Hironic. I like went back and forth with multiple fans who were like he was shooting, and I was like who cares? That doesn't matter. Well, it did. I just didn't know that. So uh, eventually someone like pointed out to me and I felt stupid or whatever, but you know, you move on, you, you, you fly the next day. I'm in uh, New York at, at the Red Wings practice, sitting in the stands, watching them practice. And Iserman uh, is walking by and, and he starts walking up the stairs. He's going to, you know, sit and watch practice as well. And he goes, Max, I'm going to send you a rule book. <laughs> You're supposed to be the expert here. So clearly somehow he had seen that and, and seen me uh, make a fool of myself. And I just had to, uh, I, he was right. He was right. I was completely dead wrong on that one and got called out uh, plenty for it. But I know you got a better one. So I'll yeah. let you go next. His sarcastic humor is something sometimes. Uh, it is. It's, it's fun. Yeah. No, no, no. He doesn't mean it in a bad way. Um, so we were at the U18 World Championships uh, uh, in Dallas a year ago. And if anybody walked that tournament, they would have known that in the main rink where uh, where Team USA in the medal round most part was played, it was a big rink. It was like a, it was like an American League style style rink, and then they had the, the second smaller rink where only scouts and media were allowed to were allowed to sit. It was always funny because they they told us to quote unquote social distance in that rink, but they then decided to put 300 people in a hundred person stands. <laughs> um, and I could assure you, we were not social distancing. Uh, so whatever I get to the, get to one, of the, I think it was one of the quarterfinal games uh, or one of the last round Robin games. And I get there and I sit down in the seats and I'm just, I'm just looking for a seat. Cause I got there a little bit late. Uh, and it happens to be right, right, right where the Red Wings whole scouting staff is sitting and I just have my lineup, and I have like this this thermos that the athletic gave me that I usually put my put my coffee into, and whatever. And I'm just sitting there watching the warm ups, and all of a sudden Eisenman comes and he sits right right now right now next to me, and whatever it's it's fine. You know he doesn't. I don't I don't bug him. He, we maybe we talk for a couple of times during the game, and it's, it's it's all very polite. And but then the game started. I think it was there was for whatever reason there was delays in the game, and I had to bolt to get to the other game right after in the other rink. So I think right towards the end of the game, I just kind of got up and bolted out the door and made it to the other rink. And it's the second I get to the next rink uh, in Dallas, I look and I realize I forgot my damn thermos that the athletic gave us. And I was like, God damn it. But I knew I had some friends of mine back at the other game. So I texted them, hey, did you see it? Did I kick it over or something like that? They're like looking through the seats. They can't find it. And I'm like, God damn it, I really like that thing. <laughs> uh, so whatever, uh, little goal in my life. We're watch, watching the next game. First intermission comes comes and goes. And uh, Hakan Anderson, who some may not, may not know, he's the head European scout for the Red Wings. Uh, he walks over to me and says, Corey, you forgot your thermos in the other rink. And I'm like, oh, oh, you do you, do you have it? He's like, no, Steve has it. It's in his car. <laughs> They're nice thermoses, I should add. Like they're they're very good. Like you know, whether it's for coffee or whatever, like they're great thermoses. So this is not one that you want to be without. Yes, no, I was I was devastated, but uh, but yes, that was hilarious. And then Eiserman did come in the next, I think, intermission or game, or whatever, and he 
He brought the thermos and he planted it on the media table and he kept walking. <laughs> he's really funny. Like I, he, he's intimidating. I know people people have that perception of him, but he's a funny guy. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, he's got an interesting sense of humor. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Athletic Hockey Show's Prospect Series. You can subscribe to the Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all the bonus content from us and our entire network. It's going to start you with a 30-day free trial, and then it's just 99 cents a month after that. And of course, right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for $1 a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show. You're going to want to do that. The draft is next week. There's going to be so much good stuff coming out. It is the perfect time to subscribe. So do that, and we'll talk to you soon.